Heavenly Father, as we come to Your Word today, we come to celebrate the new covenant that we have in Christ Jesus. But we also come for our daily bread. We come hungry. And we come needing the nourishment that only Your Word can give. And so we pray, Lord, that You would use this time to feed us, to nourish us, to give us hope, to give us encouragement, to give us direction for our lives, that Christ would be glorified in our lives. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Well, first things first, I guess. Happy New Year. Happy New Year's Eve, anyway. Um, You guys might know, uh, maybe you don't, the last sermon of every year, I kind of preach something that's that's not according to plan, not uh, something that isn't uh, necessarily part of a, a book study that we're doing. Maybe it's something that I've been learning. Maybe it's something that applies specifically to where we are, which is definitely the case with the sermon that I have for today. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Ezra. The book of Ezra is where we'll be today. Um, if you've got one of the Bibles from out in the foyer, it's on page 389. Um, if you don't have a Bible from out in the foyer, there's Kings, and then there's Chronicles, and then there's Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, so Ezra is right after Second Chronicles. Um, you know, as you, as you come in today, you see that there's a lot of new stuff. And it's a new year, and, and man, I am, I am, I don't know about you guys, but I'm ready for a new year, because 2017 has been rough on me. But as you came in today, it's hard to miss the fact that there are a lot of new things going on here today. So I, I do also want to say thank you to Noel and Craig Bedward and Don, uh, especially. These people have put a lot of work in, endless hours, uh, into, into getting the foyer done. When I came here seven years ago, it was seven years and a week ago that I preached my first sermon here. And the first time I walked into this building and saw the wood paneling, my thought was, this has got to go. And uh, so here we are seven years later, uh, we got it done. Uh, better late than never, but man, it looks, uh, it looks fantastic out there. And it reminds me of, it, it brings me back to, to when I first came here. And really, we came here as missionaries, if you think about it. Uh, we came to a culture that we didn't really know a whole lot about. We had a couple connections here in the area, but we realized that this was a place where there was a desperate need for, uh, for gospel preaching and for a gospel-driven, gospel-centered church to, to be located and so it, it brings back good memories for me because I am so thankful to be here. And I, I, and I love the idea of, of missions work. And, and I consider, especially the way our culture is going, I consider the call that each one of us has, not just me, but each one of us has to be a missionary. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, if you're not a missionary, you're an imposter. And those are some harsh words perhaps. But it reminds us that there is a mission out there. There was a missionary named George Stott who was famous not only for being a a great missionary from Scotland in the 1860s, he was also remembered for the fact that he only had one leg. Nevertheless, when he and his wife, who were living in Scotland, when he and his wife Grace heard of the need to go to China and to evangelize the Chinese area of Wenzhou, they went. Now, I don't know a lot about the area of Wenzhou. Uh, maybe see Caroline Bedward after the service if you need some help. Maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> oh, okay. She, she's not even sure. Um, but uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a well-known uh, city. What I do know uh, about the, the city in the 1860s is that it did not have a good reputation. It was a city that was not only filled with temples that were devoted to false worship and, and false gods, but it was also a city that was filled with anti-foreign sentiment after year, decades of opium wars. Neither George Stott nor his wife spoke a lick of Chinese when they left, but they started learning it anyway. They, they went to China anyway, and they started learning Chinese 
for the sake of the gospel. And so they were stationed in this, this port city that had never, ever been exposed to the gospel. And they traveled from one village to another, preaching to farmers of all people. And they did this for 22 years. In 1887, George Stott's health became very poor, and he was sent home back to Scotland, where he would die of tuberculosis about two years later. There were no Christians in Wenzhou when they arrived. But when George Stott left 22 years later, they had 300 active church members. And according to Wikipedia, quote, as a result of the ongoing influence of the message of Christ, first brought there by Stott, Wenzhou is known today as the Jerusalem of China because in the entire Wenzhou municipality, which has 6 million inhabitants, there are more than 600,000 evangelical Protestants, 10% of the population. I love that. I love great stories from missions work. It reminds us that God still does great things. And if there's one thing that we should recognize as we go through the pages of Scripture, it's that God loves to do amazing things, but He often, if not almost always, starts with small, humble, and new beginnings. So we're going to be looking at actually the third chapter of Ezra today. It's a chapter that illustrates the things that God can do from humble, small, new beginnings. What about you? Maybe as we start the new year, you realize that you need a new beginning as well. If so, my prayer is that this chapter of Ezra will give you hope and direction. Or maybe if you're just looking to maintain or, or grow in your walk with the Lord, this chapter will also give you direction. But we should also make note that this chapter will give us a strong word of caution. A strong word of caution. The setting of the book of Ezra is the era that was immediately following 70 years of the Jewish people being in Babylon. 70 years of Babylonian captivity. The northern kingdom of Israel had fallen after a long, long slide into apostasy, into idolatry. And by the time that God raised up the Assyrians to come in and to invade and to, to drag the Jews off to Babylon... They were all idolaters. They were all idolaters. They, they had this beautiful temple, but it got pillaged. And despite the fact that they had this beautiful temple, their hearts were so far away from God. When the time came, though, God set them free. In fact, God changed the, the heart of King Cyrus. We read in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. He had prophesied that it would be 70 years. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of, of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Man, that is cool. God stirred his heart. This pagan king has his heart stirred by God to send the people back to Jerusalem. Now, if you take just a, a fleeting glimpse at chapter 2, it's, it is a very long chapter because it looks like a genealogy. It, it breaks down into families and numbers and, and so on and so forth. But it's not a genealogy. Rather, it's a list of all the people who went back to Jerusalem. Uh, Ezra chapter 2, verse 64 tells us that the number of Jews who agreed to return to Jerusalem was 42,360. And that's actually a very small percentage of the Jewish people who had been living in Babylon. Most of the people had no desire to go back. Most of the, the, the Israelites especially those who had been born in Babylonian captivity, 
had no interest in going back to Jerusalem. There, just, there wasn't going to be anything easy or, or profitable about it. And besides, there, there was just so much wealth and so much comfort in Babylon. It was what they were familiar with. It was what they were comfortable with. So they were thinking, why leave? And we have to understand that there's already a lesson for us in that. See, it's a picture of the narrow path. Few people, a, a small percentage going back to Jerusalem. Jesus said, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. But that's not what we hear in so many churches these days. We don't hear that it's hard. We don't hear that there's a cost. And, and so this, this small percentage of Jews who had been living in Babylon agreeing, back to, agreeing to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple is a picture of the reality that many are called, but few are chosen. So the, the first principle of, of this entire lesson is really kind of in, in the preface, if you will. It's that if you want a new beginning with God, you have to leave the world behind. See, Babylon was a literal city, but it's also a typology. It, it's a picture of something that was bigger and, and, and greater than the city itself was. It's a picture, it's an illustration, it's a typology of the world. The wicked system of man, which opposes and hates and rebels against God. The people could not properly worship God if they did not leave Babylon. And you and I can't properly worship God if we've got both feet firmly planted in Babylon either. There's no way to come to God that doesn't require leaving something behind. There's no way to come to God that doesn't require some form of, of sacrifice, including your ego. So Ezra chapter 1, verse 5 tells us actually exactly who went, who went and, and why. It clearly says everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go. What a great time. God is, is stirring hearts. And everybody whose heart was stirred does what God wants them to do does what God is calling them to do. It says everyone, not most of the people whose hearts had been stirred, not a few of the people whose hearts had been stirred, everyone whose spirit God stirred went. So first God stirs the heart of the king, then He stirs the heart of the common people. Nobody else, the other people, had any interest in going and giving up or, or, or forsaking the wealth and the comfort and the convenience that they had in the evil and wretched kingdom of Babylon. That's where they were established. That's where their treasure lay. And so, that's where they stayed. That's where most of them stayed. So this gives us an idea of what has set the context, set the stage for what we're going to see in chapter 3. So as we come to chapter 3, let's just start with uh, chapter 3, verse 1. It says, When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. So, th so they arrived in the seventh month. The seventh month of what? There are a couple ways that, that we can take that. Does it mean that it took them seven months to arrive in Jerusalem? I mean, it, it could have. It, it, was a, it was a very long journey, uh, hundreds of miles. But the text is going to make it clear for us that it's the time of the Feast of Booths, if you look down in verse 4, which means that it's the seventh month of the calendar year. So the seventh month of the calendar year, that, that was a very important month for the Jews. There were three major events that were celebrated that month. There are a couple numbers that are significant in Scripture, seven and three. Three major events that were celebrated in the seventh month, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Trumpets, and the Feast of Booths, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. The next thing the text tells us is that they were gathered as one man to Jerusalem. And what does that mean? It means that there was harmonious unity among all of them. There was no division. Remember that chapter 2 told us who these people are. 
where they came from. They came from different families. They came from from different tribes in Israel. And if you know Israel's history, you know that there was hardly a spirit of unity among the tribes and the families throughout the, the previous generations. But there was unity now among these people. And this is exactly how the church is supposed to function as well, by God's sovereign design. Contrary to the cultural Marxist teachings of our day, unity does not mean that we eliminate every difference that exists among us. No, what it means is that we look beyond our differences. Those differences continue to exist, but we look beyond those differences and we love one another, we accept one another as brothers and sisters in Christ in spite of those differences. So those differences still exist. In in our day, people have a lot of trouble accepting people who have differences, different opinions, different lifestyles. In the age of social media, what are we inclined to do with people who have great differences with us? Maybe we unfollow them. Maybe we defriend them. Or maybe we just put them on hide mode. And I'm not saying that these things are necessarily wrong. Because there is a time and place to break fellowship with somebody who is leading you astray. In fact, I would advise exactly that. If there are people who are still living it up in Babylon, so to speak, who influence you or persuade you in an ungodly manner. But the church is to be characterized by love and unity. Not without differences but despite our differences. Because we're a supernatural family. Only in the church that God Himself is building and has built can we truly say there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's from Galatians 3.28. Now that doesn't mean that there aren't physically ancestrally Jews or Greeks. It doesn't mean that there aren't people who are slaves or free in the body of Christ. And it doesn't mean, obviously, that there aren't male and females in a literal, physical sense in the body of Christ. Of course there are. What it means is that the Christian's primary identity has nothing to do with all these other things. The basis of the Christian's identity is being in Christ. We need to understand that Paul is speaking supernaturally here. He's speaking spiritually here. So spiritually, there there are no differences. But physically, yes, there are all kinds of physical differences among us. We all come from different backgrounds. We aren't all in the same demographic. And we shouldn't all be from the same demographic. Because if you're all from the same demographic, man, it's easy to love people who are just like you. That's natural. That doesn't need God for an explanation. But when you have people who are from different backgrounds, from different demographics, maybe different cultures, who love each other, who embrace each other, who accept each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, that is the supernatural unity that God has designed the church to have. We love one another, and there's unity among us anyway because we are one in Christ Jesus, not because we have all kinds of things in common in our lives or in our backgrounds with one another, but that we are all received by God, adopted as sons and daughters the same way. Nobody in Christ is in Christ because they deserve it or because they've earned it, and thus the playing field is is leveled. Because we're all, every single one of us, every person who's in Christ, every person, every one among us is a recipient of grace. There are different gifts, but nobody, nobody deserves grace more than anybody else. And this is the type of unity that God designed the church to have. And it's the kind of unity that the Israelites who had left Babylon behind had with one another as they went to Jerusalem. And I don't know about you, but what this tells me is that there is great hope. Because it shows us that God can give us 
a new beginning, no matter how far away our hearts had wandered. How spiritually low was Israel before they were taken into Babylonian captivity? I mean, if they, if they were doing the limbo, uh, they'd be laying down. They, they just couldn't go lower than they were. They were idolaters. Their hearts were so far away from God. But with God, nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible. Not turning the king's heart, not turning the people's hearts so that they would leave Babylon behind and have a new beginning, a fresh start. All things are possible with God. Let's look at verses 2 to 7. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, and offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord." But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and to the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. There's a lot in these six verses. And there are several principles that relate to having a fresh start or or a new beginning with God in this passage. But we must see that immediately upon returning to Jerusalem, some men step forward to begin building an altar where they'll offer their burnt offerings unto the Lord. We actually see in verse 6 that the reconstruction of this altar must have started before the people even arrived. But imagine this, the people, they're wandering through the wilderness and they finally get to Jerusalem all 42,360 of them. And as they come to where Jerusalem once looked so glorious, the city's just been flattened. It's burned. It's just in complete ruins. It looks like it's just been pillaged, because it has been. It's been thoroughly pillaged. Nothing remains of its former glory. But in the middle of the city, they see an altar that isn't old, that isn't worn down, that isn't destroyed. It's new. See, for the younger generations, they had never in their lives seen such a thing. Most of them were born in Babylonian captivity. So those who were younger than 70, they'd never seen a real altar before. Maybe they had read about it in the Law of Moses, in, in the Scriptures, but they had never beheld one with their, with their own eyes before. Now you might ask, why did they build the altar before they built the temple? It would seem, you know, if, if we were doing this, this logically, According to man's understanding, it would seem that the first order of business would be to lay a foundation for the temple. That's what should have been the first order of business, according to man's wisdom. But instead, the first order of business is to rebuild the altar. Why? The reason is actually pretty simple, and yet it's so profound that even the wisest man in the world could never have drawn things out this way. The reason is because if we want to draw near to God, we must understand that we come as dirty, filthy sinners. And we must be cleansed. We must be forgiven if we want to even come near to God. 
if we want to come and worship God. That is the first order of business as far as God is concerned. And of course, the book of Hebrews is all about all this stuff, telling us that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission or no forgiveness of of sins. And yet it also makes clear that the blood of bulls and the blood of goats never actually did result in the forgiveness or the remission of sins. So what was its purpose? If it didn't actually result in forgiven sins, why did they even do it? Why did they slaughter the bulls? Why did they slaughter the goats if, if that wasn't how you were forgiven? See, the purpose was to remind the people that the wage of sin is death. The wage of sin is death. Even the smallest of sins requires the shedding of blood. It was supposed to remind them that there's no such thing as a sin without consequence. That there's no sin that that God just gives a wink and a smile to and, and goes on His way. But that every sin requires the shedding of blood. Every sin is worthy of God's wrath. Every sin is worthy of the sinner's death. Every sin, therefore, requires a substitutionary atonement. The death of some, something or someone. And so the Lord instructed them to make animal sacrifices as a reminder of just how gruesome, just how offensive, just how heinous all sin is. Great sins like murder and small sins like a little white lie. It's all an offense to God. If you've ever been inside of a slaughterhouse or if you've ever seen pictures inside of a slaughterhouse, I mean, they look like death. And the altar was no different. There would just be blood splattered everywhere. And as it's offered as a burnt offering, you start to smell it. It's so thick in the air, you can taste it. I mean, it, it touches on and offends every one of our senses. Regarding the altar, God had said in Exodus 29.43, He said, I will meet there with the sons of Israel. See, the animals that were slaughtered and, and sacrificed were not an end in and of themselves, however. They were a means to an end insofar as they pointed forward to the all-sufficient, all-perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was and who is God's all-perfect, once-for-all sacrifice for sins. Now this is the time of year when we start making resolutions. Tomorrow is New Year's Day. And resolutions, I have no problem with resolutions insofar as they align with Scripture. You know, if, if, your, if your resolution is to find happiness apart from God, uh, I would ask you to repent. But if, you're, if your resolution is to draw near to God, that's great. That's great. But what you need more than resolutions is grace. What you need more than resolutions is the Gospel. If you want a new beginning with God, you too must be cleansed. You must be forgiven. And without the shedding of blood, you are still dead in your sins. And so your new beginning must start with coming to the cross of Christ where His blood was shed in order that all who would repent and believe in Him would be ransomed, would be forgiven, would be cleansed, would be redeemed, would have God's grace lavished upon them. Because you need to understand that you can't earn a good place with God. You need to understand that the best works that you have to offer God aren't enough. In fact, they're offensive to God. You can't earn His forgiveness. Everything that we have to offer is insufficient. 
For us to be forgiven, there must be the shedding of blood. For us to be forgiven, we need a substitute. Someone to stand in our place. And so a new beginning with God starts with coming to the cross where our Savior took our sins upon Himself and clothed us in exchange in garments, in robes of of righteousness. His own perfect righteousness. Alexander McLaren a great preacher of about 100, 150 years ago, once said, quote, there cannot be a temple without an altar, but there may be an altar without a temple. God meets men. God meets women at the place of sacrifice, even though there be no house for His name. End quote. The cross is the one and only place where the only sacrifice that pleased God was made. By the way, note the reason that the Israelites are doing all this stuff. You know, it's human nature to just kind of make stuff up as we go along and to just kind of go with whatever works best. It's kind of like the law of least resistance, right? You know, but these people aren't just making stuff up as they go along according to what they found comfortable or what they found convenient or what they found to be culturally relevant. Instead, no, what we see here is that they did as it was written. See those words in there? As it was written. In our day and age, we have such such a strong spirit of independence that many would say that we're free to worship God however we like. And of course, there's the story of two young men named Nadab and Abihu who thought that they were free to get creative with the way that they worshipped God. They thought that they could draw near to God in any way that worked for them as if God's specific instructions for worship were really just kind of a friendly word of advice that you can take or leave depending on how you prefer. But you see, these two men, Nadab and Abihu, had lost sight of God's perfect, unyielding holiness. They had lost sight of the fact that they weren't worthy of drawing close to God on their own personal terms and conditions. And their failure to obey, their sin, is really what it is, resulted in both of them being immediately consumed by flames because the wage of sin is death. If we continue to live and breathe after sinning, it's all grace. So the fact that any of us are here today is all grace. And so as the people arrive in Jerusalem, they're doing things as it is written. They're consulting the Scriptures. Scripture is informing their worship. Scripture is informing their decision-making. The younger generation wasn't pulled to see what it would take to get them to come and worship. They didn't say, you know we got to keep up with the times. And with the way people are today, we got to change things up. No, they went back to the Word of God. And they obeyed it. And if you want a new beginning with God, or if you just want to maintain your walk with God, you must do the same. Because obedience unto the Lord is never, ever in Scripture presented as something that is just optional. Now, at the same time, it would be really easy to say he, he, he demands obedience and I, I can't do it perfectly. I just keep falling short. So, pff, I'm out of here. I, I, if I can't obey perfectly, I'm not even going to try. And you would be correct to say that you cannot obey perfectly. And neither can I. But the reality is that that would never, ever be an excuse to just stop trying. Do you realize how many things in life we do imperfectly? 
I mean, think about that for a minute. How many things in life do you do imperfectly? You know what I bet you do imperfectly and what I do imperfectly, believe it or not? Drive. Right. Yeah, my, Maddie can't believe that I would say it, but I would admit that I drive imperfectly. I, I bet that none of us drives perfectly all the time. And yet, we drive. You know what else I bet you don't do perfectly all the time? Cook. Even the best chefs in the world had to make mistakes and continue to sometimes make mistakes. And yet, even though you don't cook perfectly, I bet you continue to eat because you're here today and you wouldn't be if you didn't. Think about Michael Jordan. You know, when I think of of great basketball players, I would say Michael Jordan was was the greatest ever. But whoever you might think is, is the greatest basketball player of all times, think about it. They played imperfectly. Michael Jordan had turnovers, believe it or not. Michael Jordan had the ball stolen from him. Michael Jordan missed free throws. Michael Jordan missed easy shots. But it never made him just give up and say, well, since I can't do it perfectly, I'm just going to give up. And the same works with obedience unto God. No, you can't do it perfectly on this side of glory. But don't let that be an excuse to give up on trying. If you aren't trying, I want you to consider what 1 John 1.6 says. He says, if we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So if you're not even trying, if obedience to God is something that you view as optional, if obedience to God is something that really you couldn't care less about? And you're perfectly okay with just walking in darkness? Let's just be very clear about something. The evidence speaks for itself. And if you are perfectly comfortable walking in the darkness and you have no inclination, no desire to walk in the light, you're lost. You're lost. And you need to go back to square one. Go back to the cross where we see what's necessary because of our sin for us to be reconciled to God. You know, as we we look around our world, as years come and go, we see that everything is kind of in a constant, perpetual state of change. Things are always changing. Geography changes. Scientific understanding changes. Fashion, music, culture, technology. All these things change. But God's Word, God's Word does not change. God's Word is an anchor for us because it never, ever changes. It doesn't move. It doesn't change with the times. And so when you're struggling with a sin, or maybe you're confronted by the Word of God when it contradicts something that you do, or when it points out a sin that you're guilty of, you can't take the attitude of, well, okay, I'll pray about it, and maybe I'll repent. You can't take that attitude. No, the only acceptable response is humble and immediate obedience. The question that we must use to test everything is, does it line up with Scripture? Am I living my life as it is written? As I'm supposed to? That's the question that we must use to evaluate ourselves. And that's the question that we must use to evaluate our worship of God. So if you need a new beginning with God, leave the world behind. Come to live in the shadow of the cross and strive to live a life of obedience, remembering that we must strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's from Hebrews 12.14. Let's continue, verses 8-11. to Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, 
made a beginning together with the rest of the kinsmen, the priests, and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel with his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the cymbals and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel." And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So we see here that there was, there was all kinds of clamor, all kinds of excitement as the temple begins to be rebuilt. Not just the altar, but they're rebuilding the temple now. Masons and carpenters get, get hired. All the people who would be needed to accomplish such a difficult task. They're rebuilding the house of the Lord. And in fact, that's what we see it referred to as a few times here in this passage. It's the house of the Lord. For those in the older generation, those who had seen the temple 70 years prior before it was taken down by the invading Assyrians, for that older generation who had beheld the glory of the temple once before. It must have been so great to see a time of restoration taking place before their very eyes. Now normally, we see that men who are 20 years old are being appointed to be priests here. And normally, men would have been ineligible for priesthood until they were 30 years of age as stipulated under the law. But they make an exception here. Perhaps probably out of necessity. It's entirely possible that there just weren't enough eligible men who were over 30 years of age to manage the task at hand. And so as the foundation is, is laid, as the foundation is completed, the, the priests come out with their trumpets. And the Levites, they come out with their, their cymbals. They're, they're rejoicing. They're, they're playing instruments. They're worshiping together. They're singing together. And we see at this point that the people are still one. There is still harmonious unity among them. They are united. They're celebrating together. There are no divisions among the people. What a glorious time this must have been. And look at verse 11. How many of the people who had returned to Jerusalem, how many were gathered to worship together? Was it just some of them? Was it a few of them? No, it was all of them. Every last one of them. And so there's, a, there's kind of another principle in between the lines here that we must take note of. And that is that worship is something that, sure, you, you can and, and should do on your own, but you are also, we're also designed to be a community and to worship communally. Of course, there is a very private and, and personal aspect of worshiping the Lord. I mean, it, I'd say that's where it starts. It starts with your private life. It starts with privately confessing your sins to the Lord and being cleansed. Praying to Him privately, sure. Studying God's Word daily in private, on your own, sure. And resolving in your own heart to continue striving for, for holiness, to continue striving for obedience. If, if you leave out this personal aspect of walking with the Lord, I mean, you can come to worship corporately with a body of believers every Sunday, but all you'll really be doing is reinforcing your own hypocritical ways of looking like you're walking with the Lord. Looking like you're walking the walk and talking the talk when the reality is that you aren't personally resolved to walk the walk on a daily basis in your private life. You would be a hearer, but not a doer, if you remember last week's sermon. So there's an intensely um, critical 
and, and, and personal aspect of the Christian faith. But at the same time, however, we have to remember that we're instructed specifically in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, we're instructed to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's a phrase in there that I want to draw your attention to, and we see it two times. That phrase is, one another. In fact, there are dozens of instances throughout the New Testament in which we find these words used in conjunction with one another, such as, love one another, or pray for one another, or in this passage, stir up one another, encouraging one another. But here's the question that I have. For someone who rarely comes to church or maybe never comes to church, but considers themselves to be a believer. How can you obey these instructions if you don't meet regularly with a gathering of fellow Christians? How can you adhere? How can you obey all these one another commands if you're all on your own? The answer is you, you can't. You can't. So by isolating yourself and by not assembling, gathering regularly with fellow Christians, really what, what somebody is doing is, is putting themselves in a situation in which obedience is actually impossible. It's impossible. So leave the world behind. Come to the cross. Strive to live in obedience. Be part of the body. Come to church regularly. The story that we're reading here in Ezra takes a horrible turn here, unfortunately. Because despite the celebration, despite the progress, despite the exuberance that the younger generations are experiencing, the unity is about to be lost. Let's look at verses 12 and 13. It says, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. What we see here, it's tragic. The older generation who had seen the temple before the destruction of Jerusalem, as they, they see the foundations been laid, and they see how small it is. This progress of the new temple is great, but the foundation indicates that this is not going to look like the temple used to look. And so in their minds, in the, in the hearts and minds of these people who had seen the temple in its glorious years before the invasion, in, in their hearts and minds they start comparing it. They start evaluating it and comparing it to the glory and the splendor of the way the temple looked before God disciplined Israel. And of course, the first temple, which had been constructed under King Solomon's leadership, would have been worth somewhere between, I don't know, seven, ten billion, maybe more than that in today's economy. It was beautiful. It was extravagant. It, it, there was gold everywhere. And they start to think, well, this new temple, it's, it's not as good as the old one. This, this is nothing compared to the old days. You know, you guys who are celebrating, you got nothing to celebrate. You should have seen the old one. That's kind of what is going on in their, mind, in their minds. And, and so what happens? The, 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 this joyous celebration is interrupted and it's overcome with loud weeping, mourning, as the older generation is overwhelmed by emotional sentimental nostalgia now let's not be too harsh with them let's not criticize them too harshly because every one of us is prone to do the same thing christina and i were just talking a few days ago about how 
I, I really don't like to go back to, to visit family or friends in Las Vegas anymore because the city that I grew up in is gone. It just doesn't look the same anymore. All the restaurants, all the places we used to hang out, all the things we used to do, they've, they've all changed. So, so, so there's a, a sentimental, uh, nostalgic uh, thing that, that I have with old Las Vegas. And, and so in this situation here, you've got this mixture of, of all these people who are, are yelling and, and joyously celebrating, and these people over here who are, are weeping and mourning. It sounds like a football game, doesn't it? Who do the Seahawks play today? The Cardinals? Uh, we're hoping that that's what it'll sound like, that the, the Seahawks fans will be rejoicing and that the, the Cardinals fans will be over here weeping and it makes a, a loud noise together. And who can blame them? I mean, we're not having a great year, so when we smash them, I mean, I'd cry too. You know, there, there's, there's certainly a time and place for sentimental nostalgia. I, I'm not saying that it is necessarily wrong or even a bad thing. There's, there's nothing necessarily wrong with remembering how things used to be. But here's the thing. We must not cling to those things. Think about what's going on here. The reason that the temple was destroyed is because the Assyrian army invaded. But why was the Assyrian army raised up to invade? It's because the Israelites' hearts were so far away from God. They had this beautiful temple, but their hearts were far away from God. Now they've got this ugly little shack of a temple, and their hearts are close to God. And so we're seeing some mixed priorities. Oh, but the temple was so beautiful. Oh, but their hearts were so far away from God. The new one's so ugly. It's so great to see people coming back to the Lord. Do you see what's, what's happening here? Instead of mourning over Israel's sin that caused them to be disciplined by God, they're mourning over a building while hearts are being cleansed and people are being forgiven. They should be rejoicing, but their priorities are all wrong because they'd rather have a beautiful temple and see the hearts of the next generation turning to the Lord. Friends, there's definitely a time for sentimental nostalgia. There's a place for, absolutely, for, for good stewardship of a church building. We want to be good stewards, of course. But we should nevertheless be very careful about being discouraging because when we cling to sentimental nostalgia, it can, and we must be aware of this, it can lead to very great and very damaging sin. In this case, the people would become so discouraged by the criticism, by the mourning of those who remembered the glory days of the temple, that they would stop building the temple, stop working on the temple, and there would be no progress for 16 years. For 16 years, all that would be there was the altar and the foundation, and maybe a few sticks sticking up. The people wouldn't stop worshiping. No, we're designed to worship, and, and, and we do worship. They, they were no different. They were worshiping, but instead, they would stop worshiping God rightly. Instead of just stopping worship completely. They would stop worshiping God rightly until 16 years later, God raises up a prophet named Haggai, and God would use him to chastise and, and, and to rebuke and to call out the sinful neglect of the people who, instead of taking care of the Lord's house, would be spending their money and their resources building up their own houses and their own well-being instead of taking care of the Lord's house. Ecclesiastes 7.10 reveals their sin, the sin of those who were mourning. Ecclesiastes 7.10 says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Well, why not? Why not? Why shouldn't you ask this question? Well, for one thing, it sets our focus on all, all the wrong things, like it did for this generation. Their focus is on the wrong things. But secondly, it neglects God's sovereignty over the present. 
And third, as we see in the days of Ezra, it greatly, greatly discourages others. In this case, it turns people to focus on themselves instead of worshiping the Lord. All because some people who were clinging to the past and to aesthetics were mourning and discouraging others. Don't cling to the past. It's gone. You can remember it fondly, yes, but don't cling to it because it's not coming back. The purpose of the church, first and foremost, is to worship God. To worship in spirit and in truth. So set your focus primarily on that. Don't cling to aesthetics. Don't cling to yesteryear. Don't cling to the way that things used to be. Cling to Christ who never changes. Cling to His Word, which never changes, rather than the things of this world which are constantly in a state of perpetual change. And by the grace of God, let us encourage one another. Let us build one another up, encouraging ourselves as Scripture commands that we encourage one another as active participants in God's work that's being done in our presence. And of course, the temple that God dwells in today is not a building. It's His people. It's you, it's me, it's everybody who has repented and put saving faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so therefore, let us press on in our pursuit of Christ. That the work would not be put aside, not for 16 years, not for one year, not for one day. Whether that's stewardship of the building or your own devotional life with the Lord. But that God would be glorified for our departure from the world, from Babylon, our coming to the cross of Christ, our striving to live in obedience to God, and the building up, the encouraging, the edification of His people. God is a God of new beginnings. And the fruit of that, and at the very heart of that, is worship keeping God in the center of our lives where He belongs. And so in the coming year, may Christ be glorified as we are edified, as we strive to worship Him, as we should, in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. It is truly nourishment for our souls. And we realize, Lord, that we obey imperfectly. We realize that it sets a standard that we cannot live up to. And so we thank You for Christ who took on flesh and lived among us, upholding and fulfilling all the demands of the law. Living the life that we should have lived. And we thank You also that He died the death that we deserve to die that His blood was shed in order that we may be cleansed and forgiven of all unrighteousness. And so we confess these sins to You in the silence of our hearts. And we thank You that You don't just give us a small portion of grace, but that You lavish it upon us in order that we may be justified, forgiven, redeemed, and cleansed in your sight to walk in a way that would glorify Christ. So teach us to do that. Teach us to continue striving for obedience, striving for holiness, and help us to grow in the likeness of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. 
Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.